It is good to be in the house of the Lord today. We've confessed our sins. We've heard God's word. And today we're going to uh, look at this day, this Palm Sunday, consider uh, his word a little more in depth. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we give you praise. We thank you, O Lord, that you have loved us so much that you granted to, have granted us your grace, forgiveness, and restoration into sonship. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom to understand, ears to hear, and the courage to be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, you heard the reading of the gospel today where... Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday and the people are glorifying him. And we're, gonna, we're going to address that in just a few minutes. But I want to I point a few things out. Again, um, I think it's very important that we recognize that we often apply the, the method of, of science. And I, I actually think this can, be, this can be a bad thing, not just for studying God's Word, but also in the actual use of studying science, we have a tendency to focus on reductionism. Can we make it smaller? Can we make it smaller? Can we, can, without keeping in mind the whole, right? If you have a doctor that's just a specialist, but he doesn't consider the whole person, it's kind of like when you go to the hospital, right? And you've got a half a dozen doctors who come in, they all have their specialities, and it's the hospitalist who tries to take it all together. I would actually argue that I think that it's the nurses who are really helping keep that together, right? The hospitalist is probably, do we take them in, do we discharge them? But, but and I may be oversimplifying, but the point is, we can take God's word, okay? And we can, we can make it so that we just take it and we read, that ver those set of verses, those paragraphs, that section, and we don't keep in mind the greater narrative that's going on. When we last, when I last preached in Luke, and we had a week where we did a passage out of John, but when we last uh, did Luke, we were in Luke 15. So now we're picking up in Luke 19. There's a long way between 15 and 19. I want to highlight just a couple of things for you so we have context when we get to Luke chapter 19. And again, the narrative that we've seen is that God overall, since we've started this study on Luke, that God has sent his son. He's been calling to repentance the political leaders, the spiritual leaders, and the people. And by de facto, he's calling them to repent, be restored in relationship with God, but then also to the calling to care for the God-fearers and those that are in the world. They are called to be the priests of the world. It is not about their pride or that they're special people, so special in fact that they get to hold the secret, esoteric, special knowledge of God, and that I've got it and you don't. I've got God's grace and you don't. That was their attitude that they had developed. 
forgetting their call to be priests to the world. So we see, moving through in Luke 17, we see there's the parable of the unjust steward. And Jesus' point there is you can't have two masters. The rich man and Lazarus. Repent now and signs and special things and even the resurrection of a dead person isn't going to cause people to repent. You have to hear God and repent. Don't look for special circumstances. You see that Jesus talked about offenses. You need to take heed when you've sinned against God. You need to repent. And then you need to take that same grace that God has given you and give it to others. We see in faith and duty in Luke 17, it says this, So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. Jesus was emphasizing the fact that, yes, they were the servants of God, but they needed to take a place of humility they had just done their duty. It wasn't as if the master, Yahweh, the Lord of all, the, the judge of all, was going to suddenly serve them. Now Jesus, his son, came and served. But again, it's about repent, be restored to God, and take the same grace and mercy that God has given you and give it to others. We see... Again, in chapter 17, we see the ten lepers. And it says this, And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his, face, on his feet, giving him thanks. And now this is important. And he was a Samaritan. He wasn't even a Jew. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there, were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, that is Jesus said to him, Arise and go your way, your faith has made you well. There's an implication here that someone that wasn't part of the house of Israel, that wasn't part of this, quote, special people, he's the only one that got it right. He understood that God had done a work in his life, he needed to be come back and praise God and come back to Jesus. The others thought, oh, I got what I needed. I guess I'm special. I'm out of here. And there's this calling, this reminder to speak to those that are outside the house of God. We see the kingdom coming, and we see a comparison of that day, in Jesus' day, to Noah, and to Sodom. In verse 33 of chapter 17, it says this. And remember, Jesus is telling the people of Israel these things, especially the leaders, especially those that are supposed to be the people of God. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. When we try to go about scheming for our own desires, for our own methods, our own plans, without regard to God and His calling to repent, be restored, and be the priest of the world, when we're trying to preserve ourselves, we will lose it. 
He says in that closing passage there in verse 37, Jesus really gets down and he says this, and they answered him and said to him, where Lord is this, you know, when is this going to be? Where is it going to be? And Jesus said this, wherever the body is, that is the body of something dead, there the eagles will be gathered together. Jesus not only tells them that you need to be careful because you're behaving just like in the days of Noah and just like in the days of Sodom, come to repentance, but there is death coming. There is death coming. We see with the persistent widow in Luke 18, Jesus says this, I tell you that he, this is God, will avenge them speedily, that is, those that are oppressed. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And what he was saying is, yes, God's going to come and bring vengeance against those that are rebelling against him. And when Jesus says, will he find faith in the earth, he is saying, will Israel be faithful to their call, to repent of their sin, be restored in right relationship with him, and be the priests of the world? We see with the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, verse 9, it says this, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted, listen now, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. As a matter of fact, the Pharisee says this, God, I thank you, I am not like other men. I'm not like other men. People of God, be careful of your pride. It gets in the way of your calling. It is only by God's grace alone, the fact that he has pulled back the veil that you see and believe and understand these things. With that same understanding of God's mercy and work in your life, apply that to others. You compare that to the tax collector who was in the temple and it says this, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus is speaking a level of judgment and a call to repentance and then a call to do that which he is, God's word has told us to do. Again, to close out that passage, Jesus says this in Luke 18, 14, I tell you that this man went to his house, that is, the tax collector who said, Be merciful to me, O Lord, I'm a sinner. He went to his house justified rather than the, other, than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And again, to beat down the pride. Look, look, listen to me, people of God. This applies to me, it applies to you, it applies to us all. If you can't get the theme, the idol of pride is a problem. It is a problem for all of us. Sometimes, too, our relationship with God, our relationship, and, and, it, and it comes out and it works its way through into our relationships with our spouses, our children, our co-workers, everybody we meet in the community or as we call the realm of influence. And Jesus is constantly saying, hold on now, pay attention. Again, when he, in, in uh, chapter 18, where Jesus says in verse 17 
about children. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will by no means enter it. Breaking it down. Stop being prideful. And, and right after that, you know, this, this is where the rich young ruler shows up. This is the successful guy. And in verse 21, here's the thing. Jesus, he says, what do I need to do to be saved? I, I don't know what his motives were. But look, at he reveals himself by saying this. After Jesus says, keep the commandments. Jesus actually names some. And the rich young ruler says, all these I have kept from my youth. Can you imagine that? Jesus says, here are the Ten Commandments. All you got to do is keep those. That's what you can do to be saved. And he says, all these things I've done, I, I've, I've kept them. And Jesus said, you still lack one thing. Right? That's what he said. You still lack one thing. Take all you have. Take all the stuff that you've built up. And I would argue his pride in himself was the primary thing. He was proud for all the things that he had collected and his riches and his efforts and his position and everything else. And Jesus said, take all you have, sell it, give it to the poor. Take all you have and, and show that it isn't yours. It didn't come from you and it's not what you're trusting in. You lack one thing. And it swings around. And in the next section, Jesus, for the third time, predicts his death and resurrection. Now, this is important. Pay attention now. He says in chapter, this is Jesus speaking about his death and resurrection. And this is key because it says that his disciples, but they, his disciples, understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Man, they're not understanding. You know what's fascinating? Do you know what the next passage is? See, this is why these are things are important to look at the whole narrative of what's happening. The next passage, they can't see what Jesus is doing, where he is headed. And the next passage is about the blind man receiving his sight. Think about this. The blind man, you know the story. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him saying, this is Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. You know, if you look at this, the disciples through this whole time, there are all these places where they are arguing and bickering about who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. That shows up again and again. This is why they're blind, because they're concerned about preserving themselves and about their special place and not about why Jesus was there and what he was called to do. And that brings us all the way to Luke 19, where we come in to Zacchaeus at Jericho. And Zacchaeus is there, and you know the story. Jesus comes in, he's walking into town. Zacchaeus' children, you know the story, right? 
Zacchaeus can't see over the crowds because he's a short man. And so he does the only thing he can, and that is climb up in the tree. You know that story, right? And Jesus says, come down. I'm going to your house today, and he's going to preach, and he teaches. And, and, and Zacchaeus, he is overwhelmed by the truth of God's word, and he says, I'm going to, Lord, forgive me. God, forgive me, and I'm going to go back and pay restitution, even greater than is expected of me. But what do the leaders of Israel say? What do the Pharisees say? You know, the Pharisees, they're the, they're the faithful churchgoers. They're the ones that are supposed to be knowledgeable about God's word. They said this, but when they saw it, they saw Jesus in Zacchaeus' house eating with sinners. He said, they said, they all complained, saying, he's gone to be guest with the man who's a sinner. They couldn't get it. They couldn't get it. Wow. And it says this in verse 9. And Jesus said to them, Today salvation has come to this house. It's Zacchaeus' house. And listen now, because he also is a son of Abraham, for the son is man to come to seek and save which is lost. Right there, why does Jesus say he's a son of Abraham? Because he's, as much as he's saying, don't forget you're a priest of the world, Yes, you are the people of God. Yes, you are a son of Abraham. Because, because what do the Pharisees say? They are so proud that they are a son of Abraham. They've got that special place. And of course, the last thing before we get to the triumphal entry is this. The parable of the men, the, the men is, and that is that the, the king goes on a trip and he provides a certain amount of large monies to do work. And th he gives them the three different servants. One servant doubled it. Another servant increased it as well. And one servant, what did he do? He hoarded it. He dug a hole and buried it in the ground because he knew that God, or in this case the king, but it is a reference to God, that God is a just king. And he cares about what you do. So I didn't want to tarnish it. I didn't want to use what you've given me, the grace you've given me, the gifts you've given me, to reach the world, I, I wanted to protect it. So I dug a hole and I buried it. And Jesus comes in and, and takes it away. He takes it away. Judgment is being spoken of. And the opportunity for repentance is at every corner. And that is what brings us to the triumphant entry. Let's read that real quick just as a reminder. And we're going to go through it just briefly. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he, that is Jesus, drew near Bethpage. Now remember, he's going from Jericho up to Jerusalem and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite of you, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you are loosing it, you shall say to them, Because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought it to him. They brought the colt to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. 
And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. And with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered them and said, I tell you, that if these were to keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, this, ha this ends, bear with me, we're going to read a couple of more verses here because context, what's about to happen after this. Now, as he drew near, he, that is Jesus, saw the city of Jerusalem and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for, for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you in one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. What does he do? It says, Then he went to the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So if you look in your outline, it says, Let's talk more action. You see that Jesus... All through his ministry, he's teaching and preaching. He's doing miracles. He's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to be restored to God the Father. He is calling them to obey God's word and be the priests to the nations. But here, as he's in Jericho and as he prepares to go in, it says that he went up to, from Jericho and he went up to Jerusalem. Now Jericho is near the Dead Sea. That is the lowest point below sea level in the entire world. That's 1,358 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level. That journey is nearly 20 miles. Sometimes we forget the humanity of our Lord and Savior Jesus. He walked a dusty 20-mile road up a pretty steep elevation. Jesus sweated. He got thirsty. And he did all this, and his disciples still didn't understand what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. Jesus knew, and he still went on that, we might call that a hike today. But it was hot. You know, because you didn't travel that road at night. It was dangerous. So he's out there in the heat of the day, walking through the dust. And you imagine the crowd, I'm sure somewhere before him, somewhere behind him, but it got dusty. Jesus physically worked hard. He took action. He went from this low place. Actually, think about this. Where did the people of Israel enter in? to the promised land in that same area they crossed over 
the Jordan as it was coming into the Dead Sea. They came in. So Jesus comes in heading towards Jerusalem. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he knew that many did not want to be ruled by Yahweh, the true God. He knew judgment was coming to those that didn't repent. Luke 19, 29 says this, And it came to pass, when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into that village opposite of you, and you enter it, and you'll find that cult. And you know this. It's interesting because when he goes through that whole narrative, he says this in, in verse 34. He says, you know, make sure you tell them that, that the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus. The Lord needs it. The king needs this. Here we see Jesus coming as a king as he's riding on that donkey. Not as a coming in as a conqueror. Because a conqueror rides a war horse, not a donkey. No, he comes in as the king of peace on that donkey. And the people began to rejoice. Now this is important because it says this. They were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Now, you know... You know, point two says, look who shows up. And it says this, some of the Pharisees called him from the crown, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, I want, this is real important. Again, this is about looking at the whole narrative. When they say that, we think, wow, they were praising God. That's nifty. But you know, this is Psalm 118. And so these Pharisees, these people, these protectors of God's word, they knew that they were calling out Psalm 118. And so for us, we got to say, well, what's the whole context? Psalm 118, praise to God for his everlasting mercy. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. The Lord has chastened me. Verse 18 says this. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Think about this. There's all this glory in his mercy. That's what Psalm 18 is saying. And it says that the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. The chance for repentance is still there. Verse 22 of Psalm 118 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. This is the end. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So here, Psalm 118 God's merciful, God's merciful. He is chastising you, but there's a place to repent. And then he says, his mercy endures forever at the close. Again, emphasizing this. These Pharisees, they're like, don't say that. Stop this right now. Can you imagine that? Stop saying the mercies of God are available and that God is disciplining us. Stop saying that. That is happening in our world. It might even be happening in your life and my life right now. 
But you know, this isn't the last time that they're going to question Jesus. We know in Luke 20, they're going to question Jesus in the temple. This is very interesting. I just, I'll, we'll come back to that in just a little bit. But they're going to question him in Luke 20 about who's giving you this authority. Point number three, Jerusalem and Lazarus. Remember this, people of God, that Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved him, and he wept he loved him so much. Luke 19.41 says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Jesus is weeping. He's lamenting. Weeping is a sign of the pain and grief of the thing that is signified. He knows Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because of the hardness of their heart. And just as Jesus wept for his friend Lazarus, Jesus is weeping for Jerusalem. You see what's happening here? He is not coming there joyfully saying, I'm going to smash you all to bits. No, he is calling for repentance with love and care. He's imploring them at every turn. And then what does he do? He goes to cleanse the temple. Again, let's hear this. And then he went to the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but, his chi but the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to him. Now here's something really important. That these animals and these money changers... This was being done in the court of the Gentiles. The place that was supposed to be where they were the priests of the people, right? Where they were supposed to be, look, I'm going to preach the gospel to you. I want you to come to church. This is your special space. We're the priests. We do our thing in here. But this is your place. They set this up in the place that was meant for the world. You see the narrative going on here? You know, we see that God's word speaks strongly to us. You can see in Malachi chapter 3 and in Jeremiah chapter 7 as well. Where God says, listen, you're mistreating the use of the temple. Jesus visits the temple twice, in Luke 19 and again in Luke 20. I want you to consider this. Jesus is actually coming as the priest to inspect the house. If you look at Leviticus, we can see in Leviticus 14 beginning verse 33 and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying that when you have come into the land of Canaan which I have given you as a possession and I put a leprous plague in the house of the land of your possession so God will put it into the house excuse me put that plague in there God sends it and then it says this that if you go through and you cleanse it, so Jesus is cleansing the temple, right? If you turn around and come back, verse 43 of Leviticus 14, now if the plague comes back and it breaks out in the house, 
after he has taken away the stones, after he has scraped the house, after it has been plastered, then the priest shall come and look. If indeed the plague has spread to the house, it is an active leprosy, which is uncleanness. It is the things that separate you from God. It is unclean, and it shall break down the house, its stones, its timber, and all the plaster of the house. And he shall carry them outside the city to an unclean place. This language of the temple action highlights the continued, the, the, the fact that Jesus is exercising out the demons and taking the things that are unclean and healing people and restoring people. He enters the temple and begins to cast out the sellers. Over all the land, the synagogues are filled with unclean spirits. You kept seeing Jesus go to the synagogues and there were unclean spirits there. Think about this. After he cleanses the temple, he makes a prediction after he goes back in chapter 20. And in verse 21, he says, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he, that is Jesus, said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon the other that shall not be thrown down. You see these connections here? God is coming in, and in this whole action of Jesus coming and being proclaimed as the Lord, he is preaching mercy, he's preaching repentance, he goes and cleanses the temple, and all what do they do? They turn around and set it all back up. We don't want to have anything to do with God. We want to worship God our own way. Finally, we see in the last point in the sermon outline, the courage to do the Father's will. You know, it starts back, you see, in Luke 9, where it says this, Now it came to pass, the time had come for him to be received up. He, that is Jesus, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent his messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus had the courage to be obedient to God to recognize his call and he was a physical man and it was hard work and he said I'm going to allow God's word to speak into my life and be obedient to it and do the father's will Jesus had the courage to do what Adam would not do face the enemy of God the father and protect the bride Jesus goes from Jericho to Jerusalem and keeps his face turned to God and his Father's call. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, I pray that we would be humble, that we would repent of our, of our idolatry, that we, O oh Lord, would be merciful to those you place in our lives. May we preach the gospel through word and deed. In Jesus' name, amen.